Revolutions Per Minute is a weekly radio show from the New York City chapter of the Democratic Socialists of America, recorded live at WBAI 99.5 FM in Brooklyn every Tuesday at 7 p.m. RPM is about doing the work, the work to build a democratic socialist future. Each week, hear the latest news, analysis, and organizing experience from the minds and hearts of activists fighting every day in New York City. Join the movement at socialists.nyc. Hello, New York. I'm Chris Carr, and you're listening to Revolutions for a Minute, live from the new WBAI Studios, a socialist radio show and podcast from members of New York City, Democratic Socialists of America. The Democratic Socialists of America is the largest socialist organization in the United States, with 95,000 members nationwide, and NYC, DSA, is its biggest chapter. We are run by our 9,000-plus members and organizers who are working together to build democratic socialism in all five boroughs. Again, I'm Chris Carr, he and pronouns, and I am a union member with UAW Local 2710 and a member of the RPM Collective. This past weekend, DSA held their inaugural kickoff for their new nationwide campaign for trans rights and bodily autonomy. Spearheaded by the Trans Rights and Bodily Autonomy Campaign Commission, DSA will mobilize the organization's tens of thousands of members across 150 plus chapters across the country, not only to combat the advances of the far right and their systematic attempt at every level of government to remove trans people from public life and restrict access to abortion, but also to advance a positive vision of queer liberation that protects queer spaces, our rights as workers, students and educators, and as human beings. Tonight, we're here from Genevieve, joining us from Ithaca and one of the leaders of this organization-wide project. To break down all the pieces of this ambitious campaign, how DSA will, will rise to fight the far right, and why the struggle for trans rights and bodily autonomy is a struggle for the whole working class. We have a great show ahead of you tonight, but first, the headlines with Caroline Van Zeitz. Hello, listeners. This is Caroline with your headlines for today, Tuesday, February 6th. In local news, after Mayor Adams vetoed a bill to ban solitary confinement in city jails and another bill to require the NYPD to report more data on low-level stops, the city council overrode both vetoes by a vote of 42 to 9 a wider margin than when the bills were first passed. Councilmember Sean Abreu, District 7, Washington Heights, was uninvited from a sanitation department event launching new trash trucks after Abreu refused to help City Hall's efforts to disrupt the council's override of Adams' vetoes. Abreu's absence was noteworthy as he is chair of the Council Sanitation Committee and as Manhattan Community Board 9, the site of a new trash containerization pilot also announced at this event is entirely within his district. After years of delays, the Department of Sanitation has announced the rollout of its Commercial Waste Zones program, which aims to reduce the number of truck trips and improve worker and pedestrian safety. Crashes involving commercial garbage trucks killed at least 43 New Yorkers and injured 107 others between 2010 and 2019. 
Delays and denials for New Yorkers seeking cash assistance have exploded under the Adams administration. Efforts to legalize and bring basement apartments up to code are receiving pushback from legislatures in Albany. The Department of Education has been denying paid COVID sick leave to substitute teachers who are legally entitled to it, according to the State Department of Labor. Illegal straw donations made to Mayor Adams' re-election campaign came from businesses that work with the city government. A group of parents with the Community Education Council for District 14, Williamsburg, Bedstuy, Bushwick, have called out the Department of Education for failing to support Palestinian students and protect teachers, students, and parents calling for a ceasefire from harassment. In elections news, Anathea Simpkins, a nonprofit executive from Greenpoint, announced a challenge to DSA-endorsed Assembly member Emily Gallagher, District 50, North Brooklyn, touting support from an anti-bike lane organization. State Senator Neil Breslin, District 46, Albany, the longest tenured member of the state Senate and a high-ranking member of leadership, announced his retirement. Assemblymember Pat Fahey has been endorsed by the Albany County Democratic Committee to succeed Breslin. City Limits interviewed Assemblymember Stefani Zinnerman, District 56, Bedsty, who was facing a challenge from DSA-endorsed candidate Eon Huntley in the June primary. Zinnerman, a longtime proponent of chartered schools, drew parallels between a woman's right to choose an abortion and parents' access to charter schools. She also reaffirmed her opposition to the Good Cause Bill, saying that landlords are there to help people, and they have for generations. Assemblymember Ken Zabrowski, District 96, Rockland County, announced his retirement. Clarkstown Councilmember Patrick Carroll announced his candidacy for the Democratic nomination on the same day. Over 40% of the money raised by George Latimer, a primary challenger to Jamal Bowman, NY16 North Bronx White Plains Yonkers, has come from the American Israel Public Affairs Committee. For Revolutions Per Minute, this is Caroline Van Zeitz. Now back to the studio for today's show. Thank you, Caroline. Our headlines are brought to you by The Thorn, an incredible weekly newsletter by NYC DSA Electoral Working Group, covering local politics and radical activism. Subscribe at thethornnyc.substack.com. Okay, we have a great show ahead of you tonight. As I mentioned at the top of the show, I am joined in studio by Genevieve, uh, who is joining us from Ithaca. So just to get started, can you sort of introduce the campaign commission and also tell us a bit about yourself and your own political journey? Yeah, so... Every two years, as probably many listeners of this show know, DSA has a national convention. And at the one last year, the membership voted to add uh, a third national issue priority alongside the labor and climate and like Green New Deal work that we've held down for a really long time and been really successful at, right? Like DSA members have been a part of historic victories and have been a part of like reforming UAW, have been a part of the Build Public Renewables Act. Um, And members chose to turn that energy in a direction that's not new to DSA, but is new as like a sanctioned national priority, which is trans rights and bodily autonomy. And similar to like the National Labor Commission or the Green New Deal Campaign Commission, 
the membership has set up this National Campaign Commission for Trans Rights and Bodily Autonomy. And I'm using a lot of structure words, but what this means is that this is a place to house multiple different campaigns across like different areas of struggle, like legislative, uh, labor solidarity, direct like resource networks and mutual aid stuff all across the entire United States. The reason that like this is so exciting for me and that I applied to be a part of uh, steering it is because right now there is no national hub for organizing around trans rights in particular in America. And if you want to organize around abortion rights, like if you're in a state where there's a ballot measure and you look around at like, where can I get involved? Most of the organizations that will be involved in that ballot measure are just like a Squarespace site with a donation link. And that's all that when you ask, how can I get involved? That's the answer. And it's crazy because every year there's a new record smashed for amount of anti-trans legislation introduced at the state level. It was like 125 bills in 2021, 148 in 2022, 503 in 2023. And then this year so far, we're at the beginning of the legislative session, it's 436. And yet, if you are a transgender person or someone who loves a transgender person, and you're watching this, and you're like, what do I do about this? How do I do something? There isn't actually a place for you to go. And I believe, and I think a lot of us believe, that DSA is the best equipped organization in the country to take up that mantle. We have over 150 chapters spanning 48 states. We have hundreds of elected officials. We have tens of thousands of members. We're a place that anybody can join and be a member of and get involved and learn from experienced organizers. So we have chosen collectively to turn that energy towards trans rights and bodily autonomy at a point in American history where trans rights are under a fever pitch level of attack. Abortion rights are under a fever pitch level of attack. And we recognize the same principles that lead us to be in favor of like economic democracy as democratic socialists also lead us to be to support individual rights and freedoms and liberties. And that applies to, you know, anybody who needs health care. It applies to transgender people. I'm rambling a little bit. I'm very excited about this topic. But the long story short is that this is a extremely urgent issue in America. There's not that many places for people to go who are animated about it, even though the same attacks are happening in states across the country. And DSA has rightly recognized that we're in a position to materially help with that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and and I think it's a very exciting campaign. Like we have the you know, the kickoff uh, this past weekend, uh, which which you you were one of the leads of, and like I was in the audience, kind of absorbing it all and taking it all in. And I and I felt like very excited about like so like the broad nationwide effort of like all these different DSA chapters, like all these different elected officials, all these different efforts in labor and like local organizing and getting involved in school boards. Like there's this really this huge like effort that DSA is able to bring to the table. And and I hope to get into that throughout the show. Just to remind our listeners, you are listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener sponsor WBAI and NYC Broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. Today, we're talking with Genevieve, about DSA's national campaign to protect trans rights and bodily autonomy. We will be opening up the phone lines later in the show if you'd like to join the conversation. If you'd like to do so, you can call 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. 
212-209-2877. So getting back to this broader you know, question about DSA and about its national priorities, as you mentioned, thus far, DSA has had two national pri- priorities in climate and labor, and this now will add trans rights and bodily autonomy as that third pillar of the organization's national priorities. And so I really wanted to get more into this question of like, why was now the right time to launch this campaign? And what makes DSA well positioned to, to be that org that, that takes on this fight across the country? So like I mentioned, there's these record number of anti-trans bills every year. Abortion rights are like at a generational point of precarity. At the same time, there are millions of transgender Americans. We as a group poll 90% left wing. Public opinion, when people are polled on like, should we have civil rights? Public's opinion, public opinion is on our side. And yet, so there's all of this political energy. And if you're a trans person or if you love a trans person, I can almost guarantee that you are watching the news and watching these daily horror stories come in from all around the country about how terrifying things are right now. And yet there's no place to organize that energy, clearly. And I believe that DSA can be that place. Like I said, we have, you know, chapters in almost every state in the country, hundreds of elected officials. But in addition to that, we have a really smart and engaged membership. Our membership is full of experienced organizers. We have, you know, politicians, legislative campaign experts. We have lawyers. We have doctors. We have teachers. We have journalists. We have leaders and staff and members from the largest unions in America And all of these people have strong convictions and a deep commitment to solidarity as a foundational value. And they all know that conservative elites and the ruling class in general want us divided and want us struggling and want us hating each other. And so they feed us racism and transphobia and these false dreams that, you know, one day we're going to get rich and leave everyone else behind and it won't be our problem anymore. So just work on that. And DSA members know that our only path to power and an equal society is an organized working class majority that is united on stamping out exploitation and inequality wherever it rears its head. And then also, really importantly, we have a tradition of knowing our history as democratic socialists. We know fascism when we see it. We know we all have an urgent stake in stamping it out. And so as tens of thousands of people distributed around the country who meet all these descriptions, who have all these skills, who have all these positions that make the American economy and political system work, we are primed more than any other institution I can think of to make a serious impact on this. And when some state is you know, working on anti-trans stuff, we can connect people in that state to others in other states where the same things are going on or where they dealt with it the previous year and they can learn from each other and develop strategies that we use to fight back in a coordinated way. And then not just in red states where like there's attacks on our rights, but also people in blue states can share information and skills and model legislation with each other to improve the rights and like access to healthcare and so on of, of trans people, like exciting. And I think an actual like really significant political development in America for DSA to take this on. We have a lot to prove, but I think we're incredibly well equipped to do this and that there is, you know, it's crazy that this dominates news cycles every year. 
like every year. This is a crazy high temperature news cycle. And yet all of these people reading this news, it's not clear what you're supposed to do about it. And so many people, you go on any like trans online space and you just see so many people who just feel totally powerless and like don't know what to do. You know, DSA isn't going to be everything for everybody. And I'm not under the impression that we're going to like skyrocket to the the sole national prominent position over this. But what we can be is political infrastructure that other kinds of organizations that are optimized around funding or are optimized around policy writing and advocacy don't have tens of thousands of members distributed across 48 states. We do. And so we belong in that constellation of organizations that are starting to wake up and fight this problem. Right. Yeah. And so like getting in more into like the details of of this campaign, what it will actually look like on the ground. Can you talk a bit about the different components of the campaign and how they all fit together into this uh, political infrastructure? Yeah. So there's there's like how I look at this and then there's sort of the the material like steps that we're taking. And I'll start with how I see this. I see it as there's a few different kinds of work that we have to do. One is like policy and electoral work, which, you know, across DSA, there's different opinions on the primacy of that question. But what's really clear is that for transgender people, that is the realm in which struggle for power to dismantle our rights and our ability to exist in society is happening. It's happening in the policy and like legislative and electoral realm. And so if we want to fight the far right in the places where they're waging these fights, we have to be there, you know, speaking with like congressional staff and state legislators and and so on around the country, there has, it's become really clear that, like I said, there isn't a super clear national hub for organizing around this. If some legislature is trying to attack abortion rights, which is another important thing for us to show up on, but like there are so many, the phones are blowing up. There's so many, there's so much infrastructure around that. And trans rights are really foundationally a very similar political question. And yet the infrastructure to do that kind of stuff around trans rights doesn't really exist right now. And so something I'm particularly excited to do is do a lot of like policy and legislative work around the country, like at the local level and at the national level, and maybe start to drum up some momentum around some national demands that have started appearing. And at the local level, engage DSA chapters in turning their cities and their towns and their counties into trans sanctuary, you know, cities, towns, counties, So that's like the policy and electoral realm. And then there's also a something that's a lot harder to talk about campaigning around, which is like the cultural realm. The far right is not just waging a legislative campaign. And we'll get into this more in, in, in a little bit, I'm sure. But they're also waging a cultural campaign to spread hatred for transgender people and attack the American public's capacity for solidarity and our ability to see an injury to another person as an injury to ourselves. And like I said, I'll go into that more in a, in a minute. But in order to beat that cultural campaign, just like writing legislation and and just doing like news cycles about that isn't enough. Legislation gives us a great opportunity to dominate news cycles the same way that the right is dominating them. But there's this larger need for spreading like love and acceptance for transgender people and spreading the value of solidarity, not as a function of some 
larger thing, but just like for its own sake and making trans people visible in, you know, communities around the country. Because if you see someone as a member of your community, rather than this demonized and sensationalized idea on television, you're going to feel empathy for them. You're going to see them as like yourself. And that is something that is really missing from like the political work on this subject right now, I think. Um, some people are are working on it, but it's like particularly something that DSA as an institution that has a lot of members, not a lot of money, but this really widely distributed presence is really well equipped to, to work on. So there's the legislative and electoral, there's the cultural, and then there's direct like resource and training networks. It's an uncomfortable idea to sit with, but there are trans people all over America who need domestic asylum right now. And it is not out of the question that there are trans people in America who are going to need international asylum in the near future. And in addition to that, there are people who are struggling with access to hormones. There are people who are struggling with access to other kinds of gender affirming medical care. There are people who are being kicked out of their homes. There are people who are dealing with all kinds of like material issues that we have the ability as like a giant group of people across the country to contribute in some way to helping them with. We can distribute resources, we can help relocate people. And so I think that that's, that's another thing that I, I'm very hopeful that we're able to build up the infrastructure to do. These are very lofty ideas. And I'm going to bring it down to basic things that we've agreed, like, this is where we're starting. And the first and foremost is that we're doing a National Trans Day of Visibility mobilization on March 31st across as many DSA chapters as we can possibly get to, to uh, join. And um, we'll have a link to anybody listening to uh, a pledge for that and to like join the National Campaign Commission and so on. But last year was the largest Trans Day of Visibility that has ever happened in the United States. People are really starting to pay more attention to this. And we believe that this year's can be even larger and that a national organization like DSA can be a really significant part of, of making it huge and making trans people in communities across America feel like, look at all of these people who are standing in solidarity with me and also bring attention to people who are maybe tuned out. Like, look what is happening. Look how these like authoritarian right-wingers are coming for, are coming between you and your doctor or becoming, you know, coming between families and their doctors and reaching into private lives in this horrifying authoritarian fashion. So there's the, you know, you can join in the National Trans Day of Visibility, and that's going to be our most immediate work over the next couple of months. But there's within that, there's like different ways you can do that. Some people in some states are going to want to do like a protest. Some people are going to want to do like a celebratory rally. Some people are going to want to do resource tabling. Some people are going to, you know, want to have it be part of becoming a trans sanctuary city. And so we have these smaller tracks within it. Um, like we launched a toolkit this week for becoming a trans sanctuary city. And it, if you're listening and you're like not in a place and you're in a place where you're not sure, or even if your state is a trans sanctuary state, which New York is, you should look into this because I guarantee there's stuff that we can do in your city. And I guarantee that it matters for spreading love and solidarity for trans people in your city. And this is like a huge potential around America because there's very few of these cities and it's a relatively low lift like legislative process. So that's one thing that I'm really excited to work on. At our launch call, we heard from a steward with the Times Tech Guild 
who uh, is part of the union's campaign to secure protections for trans workers at the New York Times across their different departments. And uh, they, you know, gave us a list of the demands that they're fighting for. And our hope is to help union members. We're like, we've like built a list of, of union members across the country who are interested in organizing around trans rights at their workplace or who are wanting to become unionized, who want to have this as a contract demand. So we want to help people organize for trans solidarity in their unions too. And I think that those are the two biggest things. And then there's also like, we have chapters that have done uh, trans clothing drives for people who are coming out and need clothes. It's very expensive to redo your entire wardrobe when you're newly trans. And so that's a component that people can bring to their, you know, trans day of visibility thing that like chapters in Florida have made a part of their trans day of visibility stuff in the past. So there's a lot of ideas I'm throwing out, but I, to condense it all, March 31st, DSA National Trans Day of Visibility. Within that, you can do a clothing drive. You can do a campaign to make your city a trans sanctuary city. You can protest state lawmakers that are trying to erode trans people's rights. However you want to get involved in Trans Day of Visibility, that's DSA's priority this year in this issue area, at least in the first half of the year. Yeah, that's very exciting. And and we'll be sure to provide, you know, all, you know, access to 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 our listeners through through like our, our show notes and and through our, our, our podcast formats if if people want to learn more about that. And, and yeah, and I and I think like having like all this coordinated effort like through through like the national infrastructure of DSA is very important because as we'll we'll talk about uh, in a second, like a lot of that national infrastructure is already present for for the far right. That they can have, like they already have, like these these existing, like institutions at every level, where they yeah. can rapidly propagate the spreading of of these anti anti trans bills, which are literally just like sometimes like word for word verbatim bills, which were submitted from one from one think tank to to a state legislature or to a different one, with like only like minute changes. And mm-hmm. and I think if we're going to combat that national infrastructure, we need to start thinking about having that for ourselves. But but thinking more about the far right and and that assault that we've been seeing, I think this rapid exponential rise in the past couple of years. And this may be you know a bit of a you know naive question, but like why do you think that is? Like what are some of the reasons why we've seen this resurgence in the far right assault on trans rights and bodily autonomy paired with this rise of uh, anti-trans legislation across the United States? It's not a naive question at all. It's a it's a really important question and one that like has there is actually like a clear historical thread to draw, but it's not widely taught about and it's not widely known. And I'm going to start with an anecdote, which is that when the Nazi party was on the rise in Germany, the, the you know, they're well known for their um, these like things where they would go run around at night and just kill a bunch of people and burn a bunch of places and whatever the the first like raid and book burning that they ever did was of a place called the institute for sex research in germany which was the first place to ever by any modern knowledge do successful gender reassignment surgery it was an international research and scientific hub for advancements in queer medical care and specifically trans medical care and and hormone replacement therapy and things. And the Nazi party targeted it. They lynched the first transgender woman to ever receive gender reassignment surgery at that book burning. And 
they, you know, it was done by a student wing of the Nazi party, but it was, it was a very deliberate targeting because trans people, like fascists are, believe in biological hierarchy. They believe in racial hierarchy. They believe in gender hierarchy. They're particularly threatened and they believe that those hierarchies are like divinely imposed under, you know, their own self-constructed idea of what divine is. But they're very threatened and that ideology is very threatened by the idea of people who blur the lines between those very strict gender hierarchies and roles. And trans people and queer people in general are like at the center of that and, and really deeply threaten that like biological hierarchy. And so they have this very aggressive, like exterminationist approach to, to queer and trans people, which, you know, isn't actually like materially possible. There will always be people who, you know, we could be born into any family. And it's one of the, one of the many nitpicks I have with fascism as an ideology. It's not logically consistent on that front, but they're really scared of trans people that's one thing, right? The biological hierarchies. The other part of it is that, so I'm going to, I'm going to get a little woo woo here, but go along with me in this journey. You know, if you're listening, think of capacity for solidarity as a muscle, something that we exercise and that we can strengthen or that can, you know, weaken and atrophy or that can be attacked and damaged to the point where it doesn't work. The far right or I'll say the the left, like as democratic socialists, any union drive, any like electoral and legislative campaign, and really our entire project in general is about strengthening the public's capacity for solidarity, strengthening our collective bond to each other, and like seeing ourselves as a part of a collective and and you know, everybody's well-being is interdependent on each other. The far right is highly individualistic and really hierarchical and understands that in order to politically advance, they have to attack the public's capacity for solidarity. They have to get other people to see others as inhuman and deserving of repression and extraction and eventually extermination. And so the far right wants to figure out how to attack the American public's capacity for solidarity or, you know, insert any country, but we're talking about America and transgender people, you know, in addition to being very threatening to the foundations of fascist ideology are an extremely small minority where like 1% of the population and the far right legitimately believes that if they can train the American public to hate 1% of the population into extinction, into like being comfortable watching them be, in the words of far-right speakers, eradicated, that they can then turn that energy onto larger minorities in America. And so like they're, they're picking a small group that is so small it can never have political power in an, like on its own to start that agenda with for a very intentional reason, which is part, it's part of a much longer campaign to attack Americans' capacity for solidarity. And I think this is evidenced by, you know, you, you've you've probably heard if, if you're listening to this, that even when Fox News polls its viewers about like, what are the important issues to you? An incredibly small number of respondents are, are naming transgender issues 
there was this group, Moms for Liberty, that ran all of these candidates on this like heavily anti-trans and anti-queer messaging around the country. And they lost 70% of their races for school boards around the country in the past couple of years. It was horribly unpopular. And there are Republicans who have spent inordinate amounts of money on anti-trans advertising to try to win electoral races. And it has been basically entirely unsuccessful and has actually like hurt them in a lot of places. Um, and, you know, the, in places where they've been running against Democrats on that messaging, like Democrats have gotten reelected at wider margins than they did the first time because this like creepy fixation on like kids and their health care and on like trying to strip civil rights and like cast people as deserving of extermination actually like isn't that popular with American voters. So the question is, for a political party that wants to win power in America, why spend so much time and energy on something that's not popular with voters? Ideologically, I can make this argument about advancing the fascist line in America. As democratic socialists, we run on things that are not necessarily popular with a majority of American voters. Like That's what you do when you're a fringe political movement that wants to advance your, your holding. But in the case of the anti-trans stuff, it is pushed really heavily by conservative elites who are like high up in the party or are high up in like think tank institutions and so on. And I could rattle off a list of names, but I don't feel compelled to at the moment. Um, but one name I will put out is not a person, but an institution called the Alliance for Defending Freedom. People may know the Alliance Defending Freedom from their infamous lobbying of the Supreme Court to overturn Roe versus Wade. What people don't know as well is that the Alliance Defending Freedom also since as back as early as like 2013 has been pushing local and state level anti-trans policies all around the United States of America and has written a lot of the model policy that's now used to dismantle transgender rights today, you know, 10 years later. And the reason that like some of the sort of like Nazi free conservative leaders and institutions like the Alliance Defending Freedom, which I would say is just full of those people, are pushing this is exactly what I said about how they recognize that even if this isn't popular now, the long term success of their ideological project relies on training Americans to hate other people into extinction and beating voters over the head with it until they accept it. The hopeful thing is that that isn't necessarily uh, working that well. And we have a huge window of opportunity to counter it. But if we're going to, to wrap this up back to what you said at the beginning, we need national infrastructure to do it. The right has built that and it's time for the left to build it too. And that's what I see this project as starting us in the direction of. Absolutely. And and I I loved the way that you were you were able to like weave this into this broader historical point that historically this is this is how fascist movements have have arisen. And and I think connecting that to attacking like very small minorities who have very small political power and 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 weakening the, the muscle of solidarity, as you say, is is pre precisely where we as we as the left can make can make our impact by by strengthening that muscle, by by forging those bonds of solidarity. But of course, you know, as you're saying, you know, as democratic socialists, we're a fringe part of that of that counter strike, at least as of now, against the far right. But from like Democrats and liberals who who have oh, been boy. in power, what has been that counter strategy been by the Democrats? And why has have those approaches, I think, been insufficient? And what can be that socialist mm. difference? I mean, it's been different in different places. And I kind of want to like start this off with a, with a story about myself 
which is that I grew up in a, a more conservative state in a really conservative, like ultra, you know, religious fundamentalist environment where being trans was not okay. And I arrived in New York where I live now because I was deliberately like seeking a quote unquote safe state where I could transition and live my full life as myself. And I, you know, I have, I'm, I'm very happy here. I found a lot of love and acceptance, but also it's immediately very clear and it's often clear to people before they even move because they have trouble even figuring out how to move, that there's a ceiling on your like access to freedom in a capitalist society. I've moved here to transition, but I struggled until this year to have access to affordable gender affirming care. And, you know, when I first moved here, I was homeless and then I was housing unstable for a not a lot longer. And I was working for below minimum wage for even longer than that. And the whole reason that I got into politics is because I was, you know, working at a, a cafe that was paying us below minimum wage. I went to my local worker center and I said, hey, this doesn't seem legal. And they were like, oh, tipped wage. It is legal. But you know what you can do is you and your coworkers can unionize. And they taught me how to do that. And we unionized and, you know, the rest is history. Through my own like political development in the state of New York, I've like from there been involved in like unionizing at multiple workplaces. I also was involved in founding a citywide tenants union in Ithaca and also founding like a pretty successful socialist electoral project called the Ithaca Solidarity Slate. And I now, you know, my day job now is working at the state level in tenant organizing and tenants rights policy because... And I, I still struggle with like rent prices. I still don't know if I'm going to get my lease renewed next year. And so as like a trans person who, you know, disproportionately like is more likely to, to struggle with those things and knowing lots of other trans people who do, I recognize that like we actually need a strong and organized socialist left in order to achieve the freedoms and like basic levels of, of safety that it's kind of supposed to be the promise of living in a quote unquote safe state for trans people. So like bringing this back to the question of the Democrats, the Democrats response has been different in different places. I think it's pretty fair to say that the map of states where it's essentially like illegal to be trans, whether as an adult or as a youth, is basically identical to the map of states where Republicans control the state legislature. And I think that it's important for us to acknowledge that and question why that is. And like, what is the difference between a Democrat controlled state and a Republican controlled state in this regard and why? But what's also true is that like, for example, Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, well known as like a deep, deep blue state, uh, vetoed a bill to protect gender affirming care for trans youth, like just this past year. There are plenty of opportunities that, you know, Joe Biden could take to protect trans people, whether that's like his administration actually issuing opinions on whether trans people are counted in civil rights protections across different areas that like different federal administrations are responsible for governing, which they just haven't issued opinions on most of those or stepping in and using federal authority to override states like Florida that are, you know, banning trans people from having driver's licenses and arresting them for for having them. And, you know, the federal government could step in and use the Real ID Act and Florida Congress people are calling for the president to do that. And it hasn't happened yet. So there are these things that they could do, but that they're not doing. And Yet at the same time, like I mentioned the Alliance for Defending Freedom 
starting to introduce these like anti-trans bills in like 2013. North Carolina was the first state where a lot of this popped off. And, you know, you might remember the very famous like bathroom ban that happened there, like 2016, 2017, something like that, that resulted in like all of these, like the NFL boycotted them or something. All these corporations were boycotting the state. There was all this public outcry. And now like half the states in the country have that same exact bill, like actually in law today. But the uh, the governor at the time who was pushing that was a Republican governor and the Democrat uh, like state attorney general ran against the governor basically like on that issue and a bunch of other issues. But the governor had that attached to him and had all the backlash to it attached to him. And the Democrat, you know, attorney general really effectively weaponized this insane fascistic bigotry of this Republican governor to beat him in a really unlikely upset in a year where I think only three, you know, state level elected Republicans around the country even lost their incumbent races because, you know, the Republicans were doing so well in the presidential election. So we've seen in some cases, Democrats really effectively like weaponize the the obvious moral high ground of like not wanting to put people in camps and exterminate them to, to beat out Republicans. But by and large, there is no like political threshold that Republicans feel like if they cross it, they're going to like lose their next election, which there is with abortion. A lot of Republicans will hesitate before getting involved in really anti-abortion stuff but won't blink twice about signing on to the worst anti-trans bill you've ever heard in your life. While I think there's some credit due for like having a good sort of on paper values standard for the Democratic Party for like that trans people are people and like deserve rights, like with so many other things with the Democrats, there which it's like not a real party structure. There's no like programmatic enactment and enforcement of those standards. And so it's just like hollow and there's just not a lot happening on it. And there's this huge unseized opportunity where public opinion is on the side of like acceptance and freedom and, and whatever. And like the National Democrats just have not had the juice to to take that on. And in states recently, like New Hampshire and Maine have failed to protect transgender people. Like when New Hampshire had anti-trans bills, some Democrats either just didn't come to vote or voted in in favor of them. And in Maine, Democrats got lobbied really heavily by far right Republicans and like withdrew a bill to protect rights for trans kids. And so that lack of like programmatic enforcement is really disappointing and also like core to the structure of the party and is why we need institutions like DSA that can organize like programmatically around solidarity and love and acceptance for trans people and all people because you're just not going to get anywhere with like a hollow party structure that doesn't enforce those standards, I think. And, you know, even on abortion where they are more aggressively enforced, I use that as a comparison. Still, they've been totally ineffective, basically, compared to the far right over the past generation in holding their ground while the far right has advanced and overturned Roe versus Wade. And so I think, you know, my recommendation to the Democrats is have some kind of referendum on this because you're failing horribly at it, but, uh, and you know, you're going to have some electoral problems as a result. But in the meantime, what we can do is like organize with our neighbors and people around the country to like spread love and solidarity for trans people and advance pro trans legislation and so on. And hope that, you know, other institutions catch up. You're listening to Revolutions for Bennett on listener sponsored WBAI and NYC Broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. 
Today, we're talking about DSA's nationwide campaign to protect trans rights and bodily autonomy. But before we continue our interview with Genevieve, it's that time of the show again, where we step back and acknowledge that everything we do here on Revolutions Per Minute, from hosting and producing the staff, the engineers, would not be possible without the reliable support we receive from you, our listeners. We are not corporate-backed, like the, the far-right fascists in power and in city councils, school boards, state legislatures across the country. They may have the money, but they will never have the people. So Genevieve, I, I want to throw this question to you. Why, why is it important to support working-class media like RPM? I mean, how much working-class media is there? How much I'm sure you've had discussions on your show about the complete like dismantling of of local press and like people run news institutions and just this corporate gobbling by like Gannett and other huge corporations that advance like right wing, you know, propaganda and ideology and in the process destroy local and public institutions that like people use to connect with each other and other people in their community. So I am a longtime listener of Revolutions Per Minute, and I think it's an incredibly important project. And I'm absolutely delighted that there is such like a vibrant and active DSA public radio show in uh, in New York, but that relies on WBAI as an institution. And so I want to really strongly encourage listeners, if you've been like a loyal listener of RPM for a while, and you hear this pitch every single time and you haven't done it yet, like this is the time economically to put the money in to make sure that institutions like this keep going and that we have, you know, media that is by us for us, that some, you know, CEO, however many states over is not making deals behind the scenes of what they're going to like push and what they're going to fire reporters for, for trying to cover in their communities, which is probably more likely than not the same stuff that we're going to work on in those communities. Thank you so much. Yeah, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. So yeah, uh, uh, you harder, you know, like uh, if this kind of media speaks to you, uh, if you believe in the mission that we do here at Revolutions Per Minute, uh, if you want to hear more from the organizers like Genevieve, who are fighting back against the far right and their attacks on trans people and the broader working class, then please call 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. It would be an understatement to say that every dollar counts because the station needs every bit of it if it's going to afford New York rent, pay our bills, maintain our equipment, pay our incredible staff. If you are listening at home after a long day's work and want to chip in $5 or $10 or even 20 of your hard-earned money, it would be a service of media by and for the working class just for people like you. If you don't like calling people, that's all right, too. You can go online to go to WBAI.org and follow the links to send your donation. We know times are tough for everyone, but if not only will you be sustaining our operations here at the station or get cool perks like tote bags or other merch, but if you can be a WBAI buddy and donate monthly, and if your donation exceeds $25, you become a voting member in WBAI, putting the power and voice in your hands as a listener. How many radio stations allow that? Becoming a WBI buddy means that you get to call the shots. You get a voice in the direction of the station. By donating to the station and giving monthly as a WBI buddy, you are doing your part to keep working lead media alive. Again, to give the station, 
please call 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950 or at WBAI.org. Thank you. Well, we're getting close to the end of the show. <laughs> so like we, we tend to wrap up, you know, by 755. So, so I, I guess in our, in the last few minutes here, uh, I guess, is, is there anything else that you really like your, your, like the listeners to come away with anything they think they can plug into or, or any links they, th- they can follow if they want to get involved with the campaign? People are interested in what they're hearing and uh, want to sort of ground this in like, let's actually get organized across America around trans rights and bodily autonomy in a way that no one else is doing right now. You should go to uh, TRBA, which stands for Trans Rights and Bodily Autonomy, trba.dsausa.org. We're still in the launching phases, so there's not a lot up there, but there is like the join link for our National Campaign Commission. There's our Trans Day of Visibility pledge, and there's our toolkit for becoming a trans sanctuary city in the place that you live. And that's where to start right now. We're running like a big online organizing space where we have people from all over the United States who are all coordinating together on how to like organize around this problem. And uh, you would be welcome there. And if you've never done anything like this before, this is a great issue to get started on it with because you will find an incredible amount of passion. You'll find an incredible amount of receptiveness from people who you're trying to bring in or convince or get to move like a sanctuary city resolution or something. There truly is like a lot of, of hope in organizing around this. And you meet people who feel this like passion and love and like empathy for people whose rights are under attack very deeply. And it's very rewarding. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, we, we'll include all those links in the show notes if you'd like to follow up. And as we sort of approach the end of the show, I just wanted to say this has been a wonderful conversation. I, I hope you've had a, a great time, Genevieve, on Revolutions Per Minute, and we'd love to have you on again sometime in the future. Yeah, I'm so, so thankful. I really appreciate you guys covering this. Yeah, yeah we, we actually have one minute left if you if you want to say anything anything else before we close up. Oh, what do I want to say with one minute? Um <laughs> Huh, I guess I'll just summarize and say, like, we have a majoritarian like advantage on this issue. That was a thing that was really powerful for us with, in my opinion, like genuinely moving the United States government's posture on a ceasefire in Palestine and sort of defanging some of the most like war hockey, like bloodthirst that came from that because most Americans supported a ceasefire. Most Americans support not like genociding transgender people, but somebody needs to activate and like collectivize that energy. And we need to do it. The right is losing elections when they try to run on this issue. The left is winning elections when they try to run on this issue. We have an opportunity here that no one else is taking. And I'm really excited that DSA members have chosen to dive fully into this. And I am very, very proud to be helping to lead it. And and we're happy to do our part here on Revolutions Per Minute. You are listening to Revolutions Per Minute on listener sponsor WBAI and NYC Broadcasting at 99.5 FM and streaming on your favorite podcast app. To connect with us after the show, you can email us at revolutionsnyc at gmail.com. You can find us on our website, revolutionsperminute.simplecast.com or on Twitter at NYC RPM. That's it for tonight. So as I say goodbye, I'm Chris Carr. And thank you, and have a great night in New York. Good night.